This Developer's Life is brought to you by Code Rush for Visual Studio. We appreciate their support. With Consume First Declaration, powerful templates, smart selection tools, intelligent code analysis, innovative navigation, and an unrivaled collection of visual refactorings all working together, your development productivity will increase dramatically. Get Code Rush. You'll be glad you did. Check them out at devexpress.com slash coderush. Sokol, tell me about Fortran. Fortran is an interesting programming language simply because it's uh, one of the oldest programming languages that's still in use today besides assembly. Okay, wait a minute. I have to step in here. What is that music? And Fortran? Excuse me? <laughs> what have you done to my podcast? What? I mean, our podcast. I was going to say, What's our happening? podcast. Well, this week, I wanted to spend a little time being a little more creative, so it's my editing and my musical selection, because you were sleeping. Now you so, call that music. I think <laughs> well, you just used the term music. What is that? It sounds like a pocket calculator. Well, because this week's episode is called Dinosaurs, and we're talking about older things, uh, I wanted to bring in some older music. So we've got some interesting 70s remixes, we've got some MIDI and some SID chip music from Commodore 64s. It, it might be a little bit jarring, but this is what we were listening to in the 80s when we were in the computer world. It's true. It's true. So I heard the guy say something about Fortran. Who is he, and why is he doing Fortran? Well, we've got three really interesting stories on this developer's life this week. David Sokol is a uh, young developer who actually went straight out of college into a job writing Fortran. You're kidding me. Exactly. This is a living language with a lot of people using it, and... Uh, this story is about his journey as a .NET developer to first a begrudging respect and then an actual respect for, for Fortran. My goodness. Uh, and then a little later, we have someone also using a, uh, an old language, Sean Banforth, who is using Dataflex, not a living language. In fact, a totally dead language that he has no business using. A language, <laughs> I've never even heard of it. I don't even know what it is. Well, tragically, it's a language that he's given 15 years of his life to. And we'll find out about what Sean Bamforth uh, did with that 15 years and how he feels about it. And then finally, to wrap the show up, we've got our very own Pete Brown, who years and years later insists on making music with Commodore 64 uh, and is, is now ripping SID chips out of Commodore 64s and hooking them up to <laughs> actual PCs. So we've sprinkled Commodore 64 music throughout. Oh, boy. You know, this is teaching me not to go on vacation, but I will say one of my favorite parts of the last episode we did with Pete in it was the part where he said he was working with synthesizers, and I got to throw in some craft work. That was exciting. See, craft work, my friend, is music. So I don't know what this stuff is. You this, this from a man who uses Lady Gaga remixes when I'm not looking. <laughs> so you, this is my way of getting back at you. It's Commodore 64 right. week on This Developer's Life, Dinosaurs. Let's hear again what David Sokol is doing with Fortran. Fortran is an interesting programming language simply because it's uh, one of the oldest programming languages that's still in use today besides assembly. It's um, varied simply because you can definitely tell a difference between when something is written in you know, Fortran 66 versus Fortran 77 versus Fortran 90 versus the new Fortran that was only released about uh, 10 years ago. Uh, they all have very distinct coding styles and 
it's something you just don't see with like the .NET framework where you have a new revision every couple of years where you can say, oh, this person was using these helper classes, so it must be .NET 2.0 or 3.5. The actual syntax and formatting of the language makes up what version of the language you're using. It's also interesting because of the history associated with the language and the way that it's documented. I mean, when I work with Fortran on a day-to-day -day basis, I go and look at pages that look like they were formatted right out of, uh, meant to be formatted for Netscape Navigator, the gray background, the standard font that they all use, and they have a little date updated at the bottom of the page that was, you know, a couple days ago because these Fortran libraries are still being actively worked on. They are incredible because they're simply some of the most well-debugged libraries I've ever used. You have something that was written in the 1970s, and it's been adjusted, you know, once every you know, five or six years by a PhD or, you know, a researcher that focuses purely on this sort of function. And you realize that, you know, 40 years of little tiny adjustments to this, uh, this function makes it near bulletproof, which is something that's just required for some of the uses of Fortran, such as the uh, nuclear industry, um, numerical computing, and finance. How old are you? I am 26. Did you think that? I mean, tell me about how this started. You couldn't have you couldn't have planned this. No, when I was originally hired for my company, they wanted me as a .NET developer. Um, so I went in and I did my interview. Um, the programming assignment was to do a little web application that displayed a report, and I did it in C sharp, not really thinking much of it. And I accepted the job and showed up first day, and they said, "Oh, by the way, we're a VB.NET shop." And I had programmed in VB.NET before, so I was a little taken aback because I really like C Sharp. But I said, okay, no problem, I can do that. And then the uh, second day, one of our researchers came and kind of sat me down and gave me my welcome to the company. He said, oh yeah, we do all of our, our research code in Fortran. And we do that because we all know Fortran, and we used to do it all in assembly, and then the research department basically decided that we're not going to do any other, we're not going to learn another programming language. We're just going to use Fortran for anything we have. So I, I kind of like laughed at it because I didn't think that, you know, oh, this is just some you know, researcher, he's going to be writing some research and give me some formulas, and I'll go ahead and plug them into VB, and then it'll be good to go. But I didn't realize is that... I would be taking his formulas and implementing them in well-structured Fortran in a 64-bit environment. I had this one crazy Russian professor at my university who always taught a Fortran class for the engineering students. And, you know, none of the CS majors really wanted to te take the, the Fortran class because no one thought we were going to be doing Fortran. And he'd always, you know, put a plug in his own classes about software development. He was like, oh, by the way, guys, I'm teaching an introduction to Fortran course. Um, you guys should take it. It's very useful in the business world if you ever do any sort of engineering or finance stuff. And none of us did. None. Um, and then I came back a year later to kind of talk with him, catch up with the professors. And he's like, oh, yeah, so you're doing Fortran now. And I said, yeah, you were, you were absolutely right. And he's like, yeah, it's one of the best languages there is. And it um, works well with multi-core and all the high-performance stuff we're getting out of like F-sharp now. With Fortran, you get very nice performance characteristics because almost all of the functions are written um, 
well, at least the way that we write our functions are written is pure functions where you just put in inputs and get out a single output. So you can very easily do all the loops um, as vectors on a multi-core system and get massive performance gains, whereas something like C or C-sharp, where you want to do all kinds of crazy things with multi-threads, you don't get that kind of performance guarantee you can out of the Fortran compiler. Did you think that you were in trouble when this started, or were you positive? Like, I could see someone saying, oh, no, you know, this is, they bait and switched me. This is not what I signed up for. Oh, I originally jumped into it going, okay, this is my first job. I have an actual job now with healthcare and that kind of stuff. So I'm going to give this my best effort ever. And I went into it, and in about two to three days of just staring at old Fortran documentation, um, I was pretty lost. And I will say I did not go to my boss and go, hey, I'm tired of this, I, would, you know, I don't know anything about Fortran. So I just complained to my other friends who are programmers, going, I can't believe I have me working on this crap, it's so terrible, I'm going to rewrite the entire thing in C-sharp, just because I can't believe anybody even uses this stuff. And then as I got more and more into it, um, and as we converted from the old um, Compaq Fortran compiler to the, at the time, just released Intel 64-bit Fortran compiler, I kind of realized what a huge undertaking it would be to rewrite all of this well-crafted Fortran code into something that was even remotely performance uh, equivalent in a managed language or even C. Is Getting into it and getting used to all the different compiler flags and figuring out what a vector was, um, trying to get all of the old libraries that we had used, which some of them we were um, taking binaries that were compiled in the 80s and still using those in reference in our code and trying to get all those things to work on a modern system uh, was just a huge headache. And it, it required me to basically keep this long uh, change list of all of the compiler flags I used so I could get the right combination of about 14 to 15 flags just so that our code would compile properly. And it was a huge pain because there's not really any information available now on trying to get a compiler set up for Fortran. Is to, to resolve library references and all those kind of things, I had to use a third-party utility file mod to figure out exactly where the compiler was looking for things and then figure out where I should put stuff to um, get it to compile. So it was me essentially kind of reverse engineering the compiler because we didn't exactly know what it was and no one really wanted to take the time who had experience with Fortran to help me figure it out. At what point do you just give up? I mean, maybe if this is a young person's game, but you're describing, like, speed, not just speed bumps, but, like, you know, huge walls in your way. That are preventing, and you just say, "Come on, forget this dead language." I was trying to rewrite a function for a Lurie Goldberg cal calculation. Now I don't even know what that was. I was just trying to take the code that was written in Fortran and translate it word for word into Fortran or into a VB.net, and that in itself is not that hard because you can take and copy and paste a piece of Fortran. And and into Visual Studio and just change the weird syntax for the .gt for greater than into a little arrow, and uh, you're good to go. But what the problem was, 
was the external library functions that it referenced. Is there are functions that just don't exist in um, libraries for VB.net, or there exist but they're not in freely available libraries. There's a, a library called IMSL, uh, IMSL, I believe it's pronounced, uh, that we use pretty extensively in Fortran. It used to be kind of shipped by default with Fortran compilers like the HP Fortran compiler or the Intel compiler has like a single user license for this uh, library. And this thing costs like $3,000. You think of that and you compare like a single user license for DevExpress or SyncFusion and compare that to like this one tiny numerical library for $3,000 and it just seems absolutely ridiculous that it would pay those licensing costs. And on top of that, we've got things like the, the mathematical libraries aren't licensed per developer. They're licensed per, or per processor that the code is executing on. They kind of used a method where they figured that if you, know, you have enough money to buy a lot of processors, you have a lot of money to buy their software. Um, and after struggling with this, this crap for about three to four weeks, I finally got it to the point where our code would compile, and it got checked into a TFS and was into a version control system. And at that point, we just kind of designated this one machine that was in the office that sits under my desk right now, uh, that that is the machine we compile our release code on. And if anything happens to that machine, we're, we're kind of SOL because we take, you know, we take daily backups. We have a snapshot of it and everything like that. But that is the one machine that can compile our code properly. And it would probably take at least two weeks to get it up and running again. Is, is this because this is a niche? Is it like... Like, you know how you hear about people selling really old comic books for $3,000, and you say, well, who would ever spend that much money on such an obscure old thing? But then you figure, well, you know, there's a niche. It's a niche. Or are these are these the real programmers? Like, all these .NET guys and all this Microsoft and Java and all this $99 grid view type stuff, are we just playing at business, but all the real work's happening in Fortran and underneath? Well, I think that Part of the issue is that Fortran is not meant for programmers, as we call programmers, people who write you know, ASP.NET applications or WinForms or Linux, that kind of stuff. Fortran is meant to express numerical property or numerical uh, functions and formulas. I mean, it stands for formula translation. We recently hired a guy about a month ago, and he came in. He's uh, about 28, 29 years old. He came in writing Fortran. And he has been cranking out new Fortran code for the past uh, two or three weeks now. And he is not a trained software developer. He's a climate scientist. And he's writing um, some software to basically intersect, uh, try to predict hurricanes when they uh, make landfall into the eastern United States. Now, I'm not one to be able to go in and tell him, like, look, don't program in this language because it's dead because that's what he's been using and that's what works for him. And his specialty as a climate scientist, far outweighs the pain of us trying to force him to write in a language that he's not familiar with. When you deal with finance and research, you're basically going to be dealing with Fortran, and those specialists who aren't programmers are going to be working in whatever they're most comfortable with. I mean, we're kind of, as programmers, in a weird position where we have to kind of bow to the whim of the specialist in that area and still make it work just because we, their research is more valuable than the code that we produce. Mm. Do you think this language will live forever? 
it's uh, definitely got the best track record for staying alive. Um, I think it will. In the fact that we have nuclear reactors uh, running Fortran, we have new Fortran developers, you know, every day, just not in the CS perspective. It's going to be around for quite a long time, and the functions that they've built into Fortran 2000, and I'm not sure if there's a Fortran 2010, but it makes sense that there would be, um, actually make it, you know, a decent language. They got rid of all the terrible things that were in Fortran 66 and Fortran 77 to make it respectable. Um, so there's no reason it shouldn't be moving forward. We just kind of have this stigma as a developers to just basically ignore this uh, language that we read about on the old archives of the Usenet user groups. think that C-sharp could live this long? I do not know. I mean, I would hope so. But one of the things that makes Fortran incredibly uh, long-lived is that it's built on research institutions. It's built by the same people who essentially gave us the, the Internet. Uh, C-sharp is controlled more or less by Microsoft. Uh, Java is controlled more or less by Sun and then eventually by Oracle. Uh, whereas Fortran has basically for the past 30 to 40 years been controlled by a group of academics that are all working to make the language better. And even though they have an incredibly long uh, revision time, roughly 10 years in between versions, they always end up making forward progress. And I think that the fact that it's rooted mostly in academia rather than in a corporation, just makes it outlive everything. So Fortran is 50, more than 50, and you are 20... Six. So you're using a language that's twice your age. Do you think Fortran is like the Latin of programming, or is it like the English? I would say it's the English. And I'm going back to where you, when you initially learn English and sentence structure, you learn how to diagram sentences and figure out the nouns and the adverbs and figure out the adjectives. One of the incredible things about Fortran is it makes these very basic concepts to programmers very simple to use. Um, we have for loops and do loops, and those are very accessible within Fortran. Uh, variables are very accessible within Fortran, and in some cases they're much easier because you don't have to deal with all of the other things with multi-threading, um, uh, uh, reference pointers, any of that stuff, because Fortran, to me, seems like a precedent, a precedent, uh, predecessor to Visual Basic in a way, is it took a lot of the hard, crummy things about programming in an era where machines were being programmed by, by punch card and assembly only, and makes them accessible to someone who just needs to make some numbers compute. Um, I would say it's one of the more basic programming languages, and it would be a, a very good thing to give to a kid. 
Um, I mean, it wouldn't be on a level of like Logo or any of those other programming languages designed specifically for children, but it's a very easy language to grasp um, in concepts. I was trying to convert uh, some Fortran code to Visual Basic. Um, and I had worked for about two or three days converting roughly 3,000 lines of Fortran to VB. And I had um, gotten the code to match uh, all the way out to the eighth decimal place. And I was very happy with it, and it ran decently the same. I took about a 20% performance hit. And then I realized that when I hooked this couple of library functions up to our main program that all of our numbers were completely off. Uh, we ended up predicting a loss of you know, a couple extra billion dollars, which uh, definitely put us in the red. And I was trying to track this down because I was you know, pretty confident and kind of young and hard-headed that the VB code would end up being better in the long run. And it turns out that that extra ninth decimal place that I hadn't quite gotten to match yet was causing the issue. Um, and that some of the functions that we used for um, insurance loss prediction were that sensitive. And that was the exact moment that I kind of like realized that I need to go home early, have a drink, come in the next day and uh, start writing everything that needs to be in Fortran in Fortran instead of fighting the system. Is there's just too much there for any one person, I think, to go through and try to rewrite it all. And that's when I stopped fighting uh, Fortran and started going along with the current. So Scott, you know what Edgar Dijkstra says about Fortran? I know he's not a fan. I have a quote from him that I actually put in a blog post recently. Anyway, he calls Fortran the infantile disorder. By now 20 years old, it is hopelessly inadequate for whatever computer application you have in mind today. It's too clumsy, too risky, and too expensive to use. I don't think he's a fan. When did he say this? Because what I'm hearing is that Fortran is a living language with a lot of powerful stuff on it, uh, multi-threading, multi-processor, X64. Um, X uh, people are doing work in Fortran, Dijkstra or not. True. Well, that was a while ago. Well, he also doesn't like COBOL. He said, use of COBOL cripples the mind. Its teaching should therefore be regarded as a criminal offense. <laughs> I think we can That's all great. agree on that one. I think so, too. <laughs> well, I was impressed that David learned that not every problem is solvable in .NET. And I was most impressed when he stopped writing something in VB.NET and started writing it in Fortran. And I think that that's what the first act of this developer's life this week is trying to tell us, is that sometimes we can learn from the past, specifically dinosaurs that we may have written off. And that VB.NET will cause you to... Learn Fortran to, <laughs> in relief, right? You know? Clearly, that is, that is exactly what I wanted you to take away from this, okay. this segment. Well, so a serious question, though. So, so what is what I'm saying? What are, we, are we telling people to go learn Fortran? Are we saying that Fortran.net is coming? Is it going to be the new web frameworks built on Fortran? What's the deal? No, I think what I took from this segment is that there is something to learn, be learned from the past. There is something to be learned from the past, and to write off the past is to miss out on some opportunities to do good work for the future. Do we have a Fortran Geek trading card somewhere? I, I, I'm looking forward to actually getting David Sokol's rookie card <laughs> and trading that up to, to uh, maybe I'll get a, a Rob Connery. So our next, our next segment is uh, Sean Banforth, who is talking about Dataflex, which is not a language we should learn anything from. Uh, it's an old, old programming system. 
that he has given 15 years of his life to. So my name's Sean Bamforth. Uh, I'm a DataFlex programmer. Uh, DataFlex is a programming language which has been going since 1980, and to be honest, I feel like I've been programming it since 1980. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is that... That's my introduction. <laughs> That's a beautiful introduction. That was magical. Uh, were you born before 1980, I hope? Uh, I was, yes. I haven't actually been programming it since uh, 1980. I've been programming it since uh, probably 90-something, 90 95 maybe. You know how we look down on programmers that program in VB? Yeah. Is it because it's VB or is it because... And I'm talking about VB6, so the VB.net people do yeah. not need to send me a letter. Um, is it because it's VB6 or is it because it's old? It is because it's VB6. When VB6 came out, we hated VB6. Now, uh, I don't know about from other people's sides, application programmer sides, uh, why they hated VB6, but I hated it because database stuff was just impossible with it and I sort of like was working with databases and stuff but VB6 was out now my date times might be a bit wrong here but VB6 was out and I think Delphi came out after it it was around about the same time anyway and we loved Delphi and its database was rubbish as well so yeah don't know it's always been hated um, and maybe it's just because it's Microsoft the language was fine which was absolutely fine. And in a lot of ways, uh, you know, you, you can program in Dataflex, you can program in VB, there's, there's similarities there. So Dataflex is a... Um, now, the, well, we can talk about old Dataflex or new Dataflex. I'll talk about new Dataflex. So new Dataflex, uh, it is a compiled to uh, p-code, as we used to call it, uh, managed code, you'd call it now. Compiled to p-code uh, language, VB-like, I suppose. Uh, oh, this is really hard. Really hard. It's a simple language. It doesn't do like your C plus things. You know in C where you say, like, you're assigning a variable and you say A equals 27? You don't do that. You say move 27 to A. So in many ways, it's a little bit like COBOL 2. Like, is it all caps? Is it as a language that no, feels no. like it's shouting at me? It isn't all caps. Uh, it's just a language that likes to do things in its own way. Am I on the top? I'll give you another example. Uh, uh, your, say you've got a, a, a form and you pop a button on it and you want to put uh, some code in the button click event. Now, in pretty much every language out there, that's on click stuff. It goes um, in the form somewhere. So it's like an event in the form and you wire it into the button. Dataflex completely different. You have the button. The onClick event is a method inside the button object. The button is defined as a code object and the events are defined inside that object. So it's like 
you know, you think, well, that's maybe a good way of doing things, but it's different to every single thing in the world. You might be able to tell me otherwise, actually, but <laughs> I think it's... <laughs> you might say, well, that's exactly how so-and-so works. I don't know, but it, it strikes me as being different. So, yeah, it's got that COBOL syntax moves something to something. Um, and, yeah, weird objects. Somebody told me once that Finnish, the Finnish language, the language of Finland is like the one language on the planet that is like no other language. And from a linguistic perspective, it is as if they had been dropped through a wormhole from another planet. And it is their own thing. And it's, you know, it's like, maybe it's a little bit like Japanese, but it's just effectively like nothing. Is, is it, is this thing, this data flex, is it a parallel universe from like another world? It's not a parallel universe because, you know, it's, I wouldn't say it was Finnish. I would say, you know, if we're speaking English, it would be German. So it sort of sounds the same. You know, if you listen to it, words sound the same, but it's a bit different. I I, I went and I searched for Dataflex, and I went to a website called dataaccess.com. They produce it. And it looks like the website... It looks like it's um you know I'm like I'm visiting it with mosaic, or I'm in like I'm in another world of nets of Netscape three or Netscape four. Oh, you're going to be angering some it's, people. No, there. I'm just I'm being I don't I'm not trying to be opinionated about something. Having an opinion means I actually care. I'm I'm so completely apathetic towards this because I don't even know it existed until today. Right? It's like right. Fox Pro. It's one of those languages of you know like old men with beards that are really mad because Fox Pro doesn't exist anymore and if it you get exactly into it exactly like Fox Pro it is Fox Pro that's that's the perfect analogy actually I'm looking at this website and it it evokes let me put it this way I watched this movie yesterday called Cedar Rapids and Cedar Rapids uh, is an American movie about this insurance salesman who went and visited Cedar Rapids, uh, Iowa. So he grew up, which is considered a small town by yeah. anyone's, you know, anyone's measure. It's the second largest city in Iowa, but it's, a, it's an afterthought for, for, for the average American. The guy in the movie goes from his actual small town, which is smaller than Cedar Rapids, and then goes to Cedar Rapids, like a 35-year-old man, first time on a plane, first time at a hotel, and he visits an insurance salesman convention in Cedar Rapids. And he thinks that he's gone to, like, Manhattan. And when he's walking around this Holiday Inn Express in Cedar Rapids, Iowa... It was like it's like it's like 2010, but it looks like the 80s, right? The carpet is like the 80s. The suits. It's a whole parallel universe yeah. that I didn't know anything about. I feel like Dataflex must be like that. I think uh, to give them well, it's not to give them to, to explain uh, the situation. The the I think it's a small team they've got, uh, and it's a it's a shrinking community. So. They've got a small team. Everybody who uses it has got small teams. It's a small community. Well, don't, get, don't get me wrong. I'm not picking on the website. No, 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 no. I'm, I, I'm, I'm just, just saying that here's... explain why it might be that, like okay. that. But I'm just saying that they, like, these insurance people in this, in this convention care so deeply about yeah. this thing. 
you know, but it's but it's it's not going to become the next big thing. It's not going to change the universe. But at the same time, if it's not going to change the universe, why is it still around 30 years later? It must be awesome because it's here. Still. Yeah. Uh, it is. It's all right, and you can do things uh, that businesses need relatively quickly. But my feeling is that it's something whose day is gone and is now, you know, sort of shuffling towards the retirement home. That's my feeling on the language. Again, I'll probably be, uh, I'll probably be told off for saying that but well yeah. you know the the other dataflex programmer who listens to our show may have something to say about <laughs> that but what i want to understand is for you or the guy that does cobol or whoever i want people to understand that no no one is promoting the idea that the latest new fancy toy is what you should use and everyone should be doing things in you know in in seaside or in rails 4 or whatever the fancy new thing coming down the road is but like should we be looking towards the past for our computing no. needs or should we be looking towards the future? Or even if we do look towards the past and you can talk about Metro looks a little bit like VT100 and we're moving into the cloud and that's like mainframe uh, and terminals. And you can talk about the cycle of things there. But if, for me personally, I wouldn't look at Dataflex and say that is a past we need to be looking at. You know, the language is uh, archaic, you know, it isn't changing with the times. Uh, no. So I, I disagree. I don't, think there, I don't think we should be looking at it. I don't think there is anything really to take from it and say, yeah, this is, this is, uh, this is good. This is good for this language or we should incorporate this into here. No, I don't think so at all. I think it's just an old language that a lot of people... Uh, use and continue to use because they're used to using it. Well, the news flash is uh, I'm, I'm, I've given it up. I gave it up. Uh, I handed in my notice a month ago. I've got another two months to go and I'm going to try and retool myself. So, yeah. Because of this, this that was one of the reasons, yeah. Because really? I couldn't see, I couldn't see any way out, yeah. And I've got twenty years programming it. You know, you've got twenty years programming something, and uh, I'm not a young man anymore. I know there's a lot of programmers who'll say, "Oh, you don't need to be a, a young man to be a programmer," but you you do need to sort of that quickness of thought to be able to pick up new languages. Uh, but I've got to do that, yeah. I've got to, I've got to retool. And some of the new stuff, I can't get my head around. So that's a worry as well. Has you know? has Dataflex ruined you? Well, it's paid for the last 20 years, so I can't say it's ruined me. But uh, another way of maybe turning that on its head is saying, yes, <laughs> yes, Dataflex has ruined me. <laughs> it didn't move fast enough in the right direction. And, yeah, it's ruined me. Songs I poured my soul into that you so easily discard. When will you stop this act? 
did I overreact? What has Dataflex done to you that you'll never be able to do in another language because you've got 20 years of brain cells filled with Dataflex? It's, it's Dataflex patterns. It's the patterns that I've, I suppose I've built up for myself over the time, you know, this is how I'll do a, 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 a repeat loop. This is how I'll move through a data set. Um, this is uh, what I'll do. Uh, for uh, So uh, good arrays haven't been in Dataflex except for the last three years. Before that, they had bad arrays. And before that, they didn't have arrays at all. So you work your way around that. So now when I think of a problem, I don't think of solving it with arrays. You know, I think, oh, I better put it in the database and take it out of the database, you know. And it's like little patterns like that. That's my way of thinking. Also, it was, you know, 64K was your max. That was it. And I, I would never have sort of grabbed a load of thing into memory and sorted it. You know, 300 items in memory, sorted in memory throw it out again that stuff's sort of a little bit alien even now when I'm doing it I'm thinking oh this this won't work well you know it's almost like I'm I'm still thinking about I mean that's not Dataflex that's just you know older machines I'm still thinking in older machine terms I don't know if that's the same for everybody or if it's just for me but uh, yeah it's definitely there it's a revelation sometimes I think well I'll just try this and boom and it, it'll work and I think, hold up, I'm just, I'm just grabbing strings, you know. I'm grabbing 16K of string, you know. I'm messing about with it in memory and then doing something with it. And I think that's just crazy. How can you do that? So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you think, uh, what, is the, what is the strength that it's going to give you? Will it always give you a respect for memory and space? Like, will you, not, will you be unable to write sloppy code now because you I, can't? I don't want to. I don't want to respect memory and space. I want to, you know, I want to just do it the best way. And, you know, if I need to respect memory and space, be able to do it then, you know. It's, 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 it's not, um, it's, like, it's like the story of the, oh, I don't know, of the, the woman in the, uh, cutting the ends off the, off the roast, you know, before she roasted it. And it's sort of like done for years and years and years and passed down. And it's just because when she started, she had a little roasting tin. But now she's got a big roasting tin and she's still cutting the ends off the roast. It's, it's that scenario. I don't like it. <laughs> you know, if um, they, they say it takes two weeks to start a habit. Yeah. It takes like twice as long to get rid of it. Like, yeah. for example, I've been checking my blood sugar for, what is it, almost 20 years. Yeah. If they ever cure me and I become not diabetic, you're going to test your blood sugar. I'm going to sugar. test my blood sugar every damn day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder uh, if you programmed C sharp for the next twenty years, if you could look at it and see, and see your accent, your Dataflex accent in your C sharp. Oh, probably I would. Yeah. Do probably you I would. Do you remember when VB.net came out and people started writing VB.net in Hungarian naming notation, so you could totally look at vb.net code and you could say this person came directly from vb5 or vb6 why don't why don't people uh use hungarian notation in vb.net i am that person <laughs> why wouldn't you do that 
Explain to me. Because you're a dinosaur. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I'm not asking you to describe me. I'm asking you to tell me why it's not a good idea anymore. I, you know, honestly, yeah. I'm starting to realize the older I get that almost any idea in computer science is defensible. They really okay. are, right? There's no reason to, to do Hungarian or not to do it. I think if it makes you happy that you should you should do it, right? I mean, if it's programmatically the same, variable naming or, um, oh, goodness, curly braces, do we put them on one line or do we give them in their own line? That doesn't make anything run faster. No, no. So, who cares? Yeah, I mean, okay, okay. I still use Hungarian notation. <laughs> well, if, uh, in yeah. fact, that... I, I still remember moving from not Hungarian notation to Hungarian notation. So, um, yeah, maybe yeah. I can train back the other way then. It took me till 2003 to stop doing Hungarian notation. Yeah. But this is where my age is going to start showing. Right. right. Like, I'm starting to call people young man. And... <laughs> How are you, young man? Like, no one says that. You know what I mean? I, I'm like, I, I might as well just put on like a floppy hat and a 1940s zoot suit and just start walking around talking about how, yeah, Dataflex is the cat's pajamas because <laughs> there's, you know, I'm dated. I, there's nothing I can do. And, and my, my code looks dated. I'm sure that the, uh, the C-sharp code that I write now is not the C-sharp that the young people are writing these days. And there's nothing I'm going to do about it. So I will embrace... I will embrace it, and you should write Hungarian notation, and that's totally yeah. okay with me. I'll give you another example, actually, of something that I do that I've noticed other people, these newfangled programmers, don't do. And that's declaring variables not at the top of uh, methods or functions. And that, to me, seems like madness. But they, like, declare the variables when they need them. I suppose that makes sense. You know, you sort of scope in your variable use. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, everything, all mine, they just go up at the top there, and I see other people. So I think, well, what are you doing that for? That's going to break the compiler. So. <laughs> I did, I did that for years and years. It took me probably five years of .NET because, as a C programmer, that's what we did. Yeah, it was good enough for my grandfather, and it's good enough it's for me. Good enough for me. That's the one. It's all the same. Is that Vanity? Vanity Apollonia? What? I, <laughs> Those were the ladies of the age. melted my brain. I, seriously, I felt like, and then mixed together with Stevie Wonder, I mean, Scott, what are you doing to the show, man? I'm bringing oh. a different taste and a different perspective. Taste? We did a show on taste. This isn't taste. <laughs> this is New Balance shoes that you're putting on our podcast. Uh, I, I, I will leave that up to the audience to decide. And I think this is the part <laughs> where they crush you on Twitter and declare me the musical genius that I am. <laughs> Uh, we'll see about that, my friend. We will, my friend. We will. We've got. Okay. Are we done yet? Can I go now? <laughs> <laughs> we, ha- we have even more actually coming because we've got some more MIDI music, and we're going to talk to Pete Brown oh, and fine. learn about 
what a SID chip is and why looking at the Commodore 64 will teach us to be better programmers and better people today. So that was like sixth grade. So how old are you in sixth grade? 11, 12, right? Uh, where we had logo in math class, which back then math and computer science were always together. So for some reason, your your logo stuff and, and anything doing uh, that had to do with computers came as part of your math class there. But I really didn't get into it until seventh grade when I started programming on this um, deck uh I forget the number, VT-180, I think, or something like that, that we had in the corner of the computer room. And I wrote a basic program. And because the smooth scrolling on the screen was so slow, I was able to just do a whole bunch of prints in this basic program and make a little rocket fly up the screen. And that was the first time I did that. I just thought that was the most amazing thing in the world because it's you know just a bunch of statements that I wrote in a program, but it made something fly up the screen and something visible, and it was kind of interesting. And, and the rocket was just made of, I think, asterisks or something at the time, nothing spectacular. And then after that, next to those in, in that room, they had uh, the Commodore 64s, and I heard a music program playing on them once, and then that was the end of me and CPM. It was right over to the C64s. The, the SID chip, which was, I think, sound interface des- device, I think was the, the name of uh, or what that stood for, was a analog slash digital synthesizer that was included inside the Commodore 64. And surprisingly, the C64 didn't actually tap the potential of that synthesizer. I mean, the guys that that designed that chip went on to form their own synthesizer company afterwards. Uh, I believe it was in Sonic, um, you know, just based on what they learned building that chip out. I mean, the guy, when he designed it, he wanted to do something even more spectacular, but he actually just ran out of space on the die. So they, that was a real synthesizer. And today, people have come back and realized, hey, you know, with modern microcontrollers and, uh, you know, kind of modern memory, we can take these old chips out of C64s. We can sacrifice these old machines, which, you know, say what you will about that, but I, I find them over at the, the dump all the time. Every time I go to drop off stuff, I see, I see at least one in the pile of uh, um, discarded computer equipment, but they won't let me near it because it's the dump. Um, but these people go and they design circuits around that, that that really tap the power of those and make just absolutely amazing sounds out of this 30-year-old chip. So why is that interesting? I, you know, one, I can, I can hear the C64 again, but also it's, it's something familiar and at the same time it's something new. It, it's, it still sounds good today and it was a way above and beyond everything else at the time. I mean... When the C64 came out with that chip, everybody else was just doing bleeps and bloops. I mean, if you ever played any early games on the IBM or, and this is like 19, circa 1982, right? So if you played any early games on the, um, on the IBM or even uh, early Apple devices or anything like that, they sounded like crap. And then you get this thing, which has 
multiple voices and it has more than just this bizarre pulse wave or, or square wave that the other machines had. It, it had um, you know, several different waveforms and it could play multiple sounds at the same time. And it was you know, an integral piece of hardware part of that machine. So everybody took advantage of it. It wasn't an add-on board like the ad lib and stuff was years later. Um, it was just, it was absolutely amazing at the time and it still sounds good. So, you know, one of the interesting things about sound, uh, synthesizers is you get sort of waves of, um, you know, what sounds good at any point in time and stuff comes back in vogue. So, you know, getting a synthesizer now, like an analog synthesizer, like they produced back in the sixties and seventies and eighties, um, getting an analog synthesizer now will probably cost you like five to 10 times as much as it did when it sold brand new. Um, because the sound is back in there. a couple of kits called the sandwich sid and included in those kits are some new old stock sid chips so this guy basically bought out the last of the inventory and included those in the couple of kits that he put together so those didn't require sacrificing any c64s but then beyond that i've got i don't know probably um three working commodore 128s which also had uh, versions of the chip um a couple of working c64s and then probably about five or six that have been cannibalized. Um, I'd like to say that they were all had issues, but no, there were some. Um, there were a couple of C64s that I felt the chip was worth more than than the machine itself, at least for my projects. There's there's a nostalgia piece which accounts for the old farts like me that are that are interested in in um, just using these and getting their hands on real hardware. And then there's sort of a, the renewed interest in folks that weren't even born yet when these C64s came out. And some of these are synthesizer fanatics. Some of these are demo scene people where, um, you know, it's still really big in Europe where they have competitions every year where people of all ages bring their C64s or bring their C128s or their emulated versions, you know, which is something that uh, some of the folks do. And, um, and write demos for them in assembly language and other stuff that push the push those machines further than they were ever intended. So, you know, there are programs being written for that hardware today that are, you know, a hundred times more amazing and deeper than what was created back in the early 80s. It's just people have had more time to figure out um, better ways to to utilize the hardware. And I don't want to downplay the importance of the Internet. You know, back in 1982 and 85 and 86 and all that stuff, um, sharing information was not a quick process. I mean, even with the bulletin boards and everything we were all on, um, the information just didn't disseminate as quickly. But today... 
people are able to you know rediscover these old things and share information uh, about what worked best on those all around the world, not just within your own little local community or or you know a month later after it makes all the hops on Fidonet or something, um, and are able to tap the hardware better. At least in the C64 scene, it seems to be concentrated in Northern Europe, and I. I I have a theory that it has to do a lot with, you know, how long their nights are, you know, being close to six months long a lot of times. So they have more time inside uh, playing with their computers. But, you know, folks are looking for a challenge and saying, do the most amazing thing you can do in 64K of memory is a challenge to these folks. You know, it's something that, um, you know, these 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds are really kind of get a thrill out of. And even younger than that, actually. Uh, I was talking to somebody, and I can't remember his name, but he was learning 6510 assembly language or 6502 assembly language. That's a precursor to it, the, the CPU in the Commodore 64. Um, and he was, I think, 18 years old. And he was learning the 6510 assembly language not because it's going to help him get a job or because it had some kind of value um, to somebody else. But it was just interesting to him. It had no practical value. Like he wasn't. He wasn't going to go and write on his, uh, uh, you know, resume somewhere. Hey, I know sixty-five ten assembly language, because maybe some people would get that. Hey, wow, that's a pretty amazing thing. But most people would think that's not at all a marketable, marketable skill. Um, he was doing it because it was interesting and it was it was a challenge to him. And you know, I think that gave him a respect for the hardware um, that came out back then that he was able to do in 64k writing this assembly language which was is not the easiest thing in the world i mean the memory management and stuff on the c64 was difficult as i understand it um he was able to do some really amazing things that it took the rest of the world's computers you know another decade later before they were able to do that Certainly learning something like 6510 assembly language, if that's fun to you, you're, you're going to learn some skills. I mean, understanding how a CPU works and understanding how to, how to code an assembly language is going to be useful, um, I think, regardless of what technology uh, you, you decide to go into as a career later. Um, but I don't think we should require people to do that. I think it, it might be fun, but I think it would be also be a little tacky at the same time. Like, hey, you can you can talk on this car phone that's the size of a suitcase. And by the way, there's only like seven people in the world who happen to have one. And, um, you know, the, the phone you have in your house weighs 30 pounds because of the Bakelite and steel that it's made out of, right? And um, yes, this, this uh, computer here, which millions of people have, has only 64K of RAM and it hooks up to a television and that's a lot of fun. But I... I'm, I don't know. Only if it's fun for them. I don't see requiring that being a, uh, or even suggesting it's something that everybody should go to. It's not as useful as saying, you know, learn how to code in C on on the PC if you're going to code in, uh, on the PC. Let's say you're working on a PC, right? And you learn C way back to understand how the architecture of the machine uh, works. You know, understanding how the memory works on an x86 processor. Um, is different from having a deep understanding of how memory works on a 6510, right? The understanding the memory on an x86 processor is going to be useful to you, I think, you know, regardless of what you do in the x86 and even the 64-bit the space, where the other stuff is, is 
interesting and will give you some insight, but the, the concepts aren't necessarily all going to map cleanly. It might, in some ways, it might actually confuse the matter a little bit. But maybe, you know, having an intimate understanding of the internal biology of a dinosaur isn't something that's necessarily going to be applicable to being a surgeon today. Again, a big thank you to the folks at Code Rush for Visual Studio for helping support this developer's life. Code Rush has the fastest rename, the fastest find all references, fastest test runner. When it comes to creating, modifying, and refactoring code, nothing's faster than Code Rush. It's been on my ultimate power tools list since forever. Get Code Rush. You'll be glad you did. Check them out at devexpress.com slash Code Rush. We appreciate their support. Mm-hmm.